Welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other educators and people in the environmental sector about their perspectives and practices for helping people connect with the natural world. In this episode, I'm joined by proud advocate for all things botanical, Joshua Stiles. We talk about a habitat which doesn't get nearly enough attention, bogs. We discuss their importance for carbon storage and about some of the amazing plants that live in these harsh habitats. Josh studied ecology at Edge Hill University and has an MSc in biological recording and ecological monitoring from Manchester Metropolitan University. In 2017, he started the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative, which has since helped reintroduce endangered plants to restored wetland areas around the northwest of England, returning plants like sundews, bladderworts, sedges, and even orchids to sites where they declined or disappeared completely as changing land use degraded or destroyed their habitats. Here's my conversation with Josh. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Victor. You okay? Yeah, uh, it's great to have you on the show. I've been following you on Twitter for some time, just seeing like neat stuff that you've been up to. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I finally reached out uh, to get you on the show because you've been doing some really exciting things. Oh my gosh. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, right. So we'll just sort of jump in with a little bit about the guest. Uh, and it's your first time on the podcast. So could you tell us a, a little bit about yourself um, and maybe how you got interested in, in nature? Yeah, sure. I suppose. Hello. My name is Josh. <laughs> I love nature, although, uh, or the group that I love the most uh, when it comes to wildlife is our plants. Um, and I really, really became interested in wild plants and biodiversity when I was um, pretty young. I was probably about six or seven. Um, and my mum let me started to grow, start to grow sort of like fruits and vegetables in the garden, which was great. Um, found it really, really interesting. I used to dig up seeds like a few days after I planted them just to see if they'd uh, start to grow yet. Yeah, used to be so fascinated with it but um when I kind of became a little bit obsessed with nature was actually watching sort of Gardener's World and one of the presenters Monty Don was encouraging everybody to sort of dedicate a little portion of their gardens to native wildflowers after quite a while me pestering my mum, we we got some wildflower seeds and dedicated sort of like a one by one meter patch to these these incredibly special native wildflowers. And I remember coming home from primary school and just sitting down and watching these incredible plants, these incredible organisms. Um, And also all of the wildlife that they attract that my fruits and vegetables didn't. There were swarms of solitary bees and beetles and micro-moths and butterflies, just this tiny portion um, of garden. And I think really that's when I initially, personally, became super, super interested, super obsessed with nature. Um, When I came to this sort of realisation that plants these incredible creatures are ultimately the the fundamental basis of all life on earth. And since then, I dug up and chucked in the bin all my fruit and veg and replaced it all with wildflowers. Um, Done 
quite a lot of volunteering and a sort of engaging in conservation stuff. Yeah. I can imagine the impatience of like, what's happened? Has something happened yet? And I love that you're just like, plant the seeds, dig them up to see like, <laughs> have this grown yet? Like not, you know, most people you're, there's the anticipation waiting for the things to poke out of the soil. And you're like, no, I'm not even waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> it. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I think your passion for plants really comes through, which is amazing. Uh, unfortunately, though, I think it's fair to say that plants for many people are not the most exciting topic. And we've got this phenomenon of plant blindness, where people just pay so little attention to plants and find them so uninteresting that they just don't even notice them in, <laughs> in their everyday life. Um, so I'm wondering, what are your, some of your favorite things about plants or some things that you find fascinating about plants? Oh my god! I could go on all day. Um, I I I find plants completely just mind boggling. I, I I mean, as as a group of organisms, I think what a lot of people fail to remember about plants, people often see them as these sort of static, inanimate objects within a landscape, but actually. They're just as alive as any animal. They're living, breathing creatures that are constantly fighting for, for top spot on in whatever ecosystem that, that an individual species is in. And, and when it comes to plants as well, each individual species has its own incredible um, series of adaptations. Some plants are vicious, some plants are carnivorous, like uh, some of our sundews and butterworts. I say some of, all of, uh, our sundews and, and butterworts and bladderworts here in Britain. So we have, we have a plant called common, common bladderwort, which is an aquatic species. And over eons of time, the bladderworts have, have evolved these sort of bladder-like traps that are able to capture... Uh, invertebrates at a pace of one ten thousandth of a second and not only are they super speedy some of the fastest plants on the planet right here in britain um but an individual plant can catch and kill and digest uh, tens of thousands of animals in an individual year um, and then we've got other plants that are just older than the dinosaurs that reproduce with sperms and eggs. Uh, we have plants whose spores we've used in the manufacture of things like condoms and anal suppositories. I, ju I just find them endlessly interesting. And as well as their overall interest as well, I think there was one thing, another thing that is super important to remember about plants is it's not just a single species of grass or a single species of tree that ultimately maintains our own sort of biodiverse habitats and, and biodiversity as a whole here in Britain. It is a huge number of different plant species here in Britain that ultimately underpin all of the life. How someone can not be interested in them, I think, is only through ignorance and nothing more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely agree. I love the way that you describe it, that they, I think there is really this image of looking out at something like maybe a meadow and you think, oh, look, it's this beautiful, peaceful, natural landscape. Everything's growing, getting along together. But actually, if you change perspective and from the plant's perspective, it is this like brutal, vicious 
like everyone's jostling, fighting for space. Everyone's competing for the same resources. You know, it's only from our big macro human perspective that a uh, habitat like that can look like, ooh, so serene, peaceful, mm-hmm. everything's harmonious. Plants are <laughs> constantly finding ways to, to obliterate their competition. They're, they're really voracious little beasties, really. In some of your work and, and some of your passion for plants, back in 2017, was it? You established the Northwest Rare Plant Initiative. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I I was really, really fortunate at university. When I was when I was graduating, I was really fortunate because Edge Hill University, the university I, I studied my undergrad at, they awarded me with a scholarship, which is great. Didn't care too much about the scholarship at the time, but rather the £2,000 that it came with, which made me momentarily feel like a millionaire. Um, and it was it was just after I graduated and I got all of this money. And I began to think over the course of sort of like a week, what can I spend this money on? So one thing that has given me sort of continual anger and frustration is um, seeing the state of plants in Britain, our wild plants. Uh, Every year or two, uh, one native plant species in every single county in England goes extinct. Plants are in a really, really bad way, our wild plants in this country. Um, And it it was kind of that frustration that drove me to to want to use this money to establish a, a conservation program looking to sort of reintroduce and, and reinforce populations of some of the rarest plant species in the northwest of England. And that's kind of what it is. It's just a conservation program for some really, really rare plants here in northwest England, basically. Could you walk us through a a reintroduction program? Because I know that your initiative has already done quite a few reintroductions of a few different species, including, as you mentioned, bladderworts and sundews, uh, and also bog mosses, which we'll come to. Um, But could you walk me through what does a reintroduction program look like? Sure. Um, So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about one species that I absolutely love. Um, it's called lesser bladderwort. It's a carnivorous plant. It's one of the fastest plants on the planet. Absolutely love it. But um, lesser bladderwort, as quick as it might be in catching its prey, hasn't been quick enough um, to respond to the serious habitat loss and damage that we as a species have inflicted upon our peatlands, um, not just in northwest England, but in England uh, and further afield as a whole. So um, lesser bladderwort used to be really, really sort of widespread, especially in sort of greater Manchester, where we have all of these peatlands. But something happened as part of the Industrial Revolution, um, in Greater Manchester and further afield, we, we basically converted areas of raised bog, now, sadly, an endangered habitat across Europe. Um, we converted areas of raised bog into agricultural land. Uh, and the bits we didn't convert, we drained um, and, and sort of dried out or extracted these sites for, for peat, for, for things like compost. 
And so as a result, what had happened to lesser bladderwort, this once widespread species in in sort of northwest England, apart from Cumbria, um, it, it become basically restricted to what is effectively a puddle in Delamere Forest that's surrounded by forestry plantation. Um, and so what is going to eventually happen, sadly, to that little puddle that has lesser bladderwort is it'll probably go extinct um, soonish. And so what I decided to do with Cheshire Wildlife Trust and the, the Lancashire Wildlife Trust and Natural England was we all worked together and I set in motion a proposal to um, sample just a, a couple of strands, a few strands from this last little tiny population. And that was all permitted. I grew it at home. And what's really, really good about the greater Manchester peatlands is a lot of these places are being restored now. They're being sort of re-wetted up by the Wildlife Trust. But basically, I took a small number of plants, cultivated them. And in 2018, we were able to reintroduce to Greater Manchester 60 of these voracious little beasties, lesser bladderwort. In 2019, that number from 60, we did like a population estimate. And it went from 60 to over 24,000 plants. It's pretty good, isn't it? Not bad. Um, <laughs> and then in the next year, in 2020, that went from 24,000, the estimate did, to over 200,000. Which is pretty darn good. And then the next year, in 2021, um, that estimate reached, um, I think it's 2.4 million. So that was one sort of reintroduction that we did. I didn't monitor it this year, uh, or last year, should I say, because there's just too much and I'll, I'll do me back in. Um, <laughs> that was, that was sort of one example of a reintroduction. Looking at the state, of a species in the region as it is. And then I also sort of looked at sites that are that are being restored, that are in this sort of suitable condition for reintroduction, and then sort of instigated that process, working with a few different people. Do you have a sense of like what the the range expansion was from that one little patch? And then like wh what kind of change in area of, of coverage is oh. this now? Oh, massive. Um, hundreds and hundreds of square metres. Um, a good thing about Lesser Bladderwort is it's aquatic. And so all of these sort of little reintroduction sites, if you if you pop a little bit into a huge water body, then there's, a, there's basically a big resource for it to fill out into. And it can do it quite, quite quickly. So, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of, of square metres. And it's on every major... Manchester bog now which is yeah that's phenomenal uh it's helped by the fact that it's aquatic because it and I guess we should say for folks who don't know what a what a bladder word is well how, how would you describe a bladder word it's it's what you call a subaffixed aquatic it's really interesting that it looks like a little bit of a malignant pond ooze um but actually if you look really closely yeah it's got these sort of fibrous green branches and these sort of gnarly stems that go everywhere. But lesser bladderwort roots itself, or sort of does anyway, into the pea or the sphagnum that's there with these little ghostly 
stems. Um, and it's these little ghostly white stems that they use to root into everything that have most of the bladders. And they'll catch things like little water fleas and mosquito larvae and loads and loads of different things. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess we should describe the little bladders as well. So, uh, the, on the stems, they just look like little mm, lumps, nodules, I think. You probably do a better yeah, job of describing they, it than me. I suppose, yeah, they do kind of, they look like little kidney-shaped beans that have a few little hairs at the top of these little beans. Um, and they are, are the trigger hairs. So, a little water flail will rustle against some of these hairs and what will happen these little kidney shaped traps is a little trap door at the top will open uh, and using a vacuum um, it's it's prey will be sucked in really really fascinating complex traps that have uh, evolved over eons and eons of time they're, they're really really interesting plants like the bladder wort they're just one of the many like really um fascinating and like amazing plants that grow in this habitat that you've mentioned in in bogs and one of the things that i'm doing with this series of episodes is hopefully raising the profile of a few what i'm calling like un unloved habitats because <laughs> i think in environments education particularly if we're if you're in classrooms there tends to be like this canon of habitats that you teach kids about you know mm. in the uk you probably will learn about ponds you'll learn about forests maybe a meadow if you're lucky uh, and then you'll learn about the rainforest and coral reefs and then that's basically it yeah. Um, but there are so many more types of habitat out there. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about bogs. Oh my God. I am. Well, raised bogs are, are my favorite, absolute favorite. So a raised bog is something that, that is a type of habitat in Britain that began to form, um, most of them anyway, sort of after the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 odd years ago. Really interesting habitats. Um, and raised bogs um, form by effectively what happened after the last ice ages. Loads of sort of hollows and lakes were carved out by glaciers. And over time, these hollows were filled in by, by, by vegetation. And they, they transitioned from sort of open water. And then as, as they filled in, and they became sort of fens. And then the vegetation, because of a very special group of plants, the sphagnum mosses, um, it didn't stop there. It kept rising. And a raised bog are these incredible peatlands. Um, they form these domes. Um, as I say, they're, they're made by this incredible group of organisms, sphagnum mosses, or a few different species anyway. Um, and these mosses are able to retain water so they can keep um, sort of the water table high on these domed habitats. Not only are they able to keep their environments wet because of their adaptations to retain water um, but they also pump out lots of different acids which makes them resistant to decay and ultimately helps to make their environment uh, as acidic as as pickled onions so 
Yeah, yeah, really, really dead special, um, but also hostile environments for a raised bog. Pretty neat. So they're they're raised because they're. I mean, what? So they would have started as like a depression, but just over time, they've actually have become raised. I guess above above the the surrounding landscape in some way because it's That's it's it. like a big um, sponge dome of mosses of sphagnum mosses and and below that peat that just That's retains it. all this water. That's it. Yep. That's it. Although although peat is actually quite bad at. Re- Sort of retaining water, it's 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 mostly the sort of sphagnum mosses and also the recently dead sphagnum mosses keep the environment wet on top. That's really interesting because one of the selling points that is often used for peat in garden compost is water retention. You've you've mentioned that bogs are really hostile habitats. You've mentioned that they're really um, they're quite acidic, and I guess we should talk about hostile to um, what kinds of other plants. So uh, I guess you it's very rare to find much in the way of tree in these trees in these habitats because a mix of water logging in the the substrate and then also um, acidity. What what other things tend to find that kind of habitat hostile and and what things tend to enjoy that kind of habitat oh my god i think everything finds that environment hostile um i know if i was a plant that liked sort of moist to dry soils that were that were quite sort of neutral um yeah it'd be like going to hell if i went on a raised bog when it when it comes to raised, sort of healthy examples of raised bog anyway, in these really really wet um, and acid environments, there are plenty of, sort of really really specialist species that you find on them. Things like sundews, where they get some of the nutrients that the soils are sort of deficient in. From eating and digesting insects, um, but there are loads of other plants as well. Things like bog myrtle, a really sort of aromatic, a small shrub that grows on raised bogs. And instead of eating insects, um, bog bog myrtle works with a sort of symbiotic species of uh, a bacteria which it's symbiotic with which fixes nitrogen in from the air into a usable foodstuff for bog myrtles. So um, there are loads and loads of specialist plants that grow on raised bogs. And not just specialist plants, but specialist fungi and, and inverts as well that you, you tend not to find very often outside of these. So they're, they're host to some really incredibly specialist wildlife. We've touched on it a little bit that um, like a lot of the carnivorous plants, certainly that you find in the UK, but also um, globally tend to be found in habitats um, that are a bit like this in that the substrate is really nutrient or at least nitrogen poor. And one of the reasons why they're nitrogen poor is, as you mentioned, that they, they're not just saturated, they're saturated with like acidic water. And as you mentioned, it can be like, like pickling fluid which keeps things like onions from from rotting for a very long time and it also keeps other plant matter from rotting and being their nutrients being released released and recycled being sort of wet and acid have have serious implications when it comes to the decay of plant material um 
when you, especially when it's it's a really really wet and sort of saturated environment that these these substrates are super super low in oxygen which means that our, our dead sphagnum and other vegetation on a healthy raised bog anyway can't decay very quickly so it just builds up and builds up as as peat over time and some species some species sequester nutrients as well um, so they basically lock nutrients up into their tissues which ultimately makes these environments even more uh, depleted um and nutrient poor but yeah yeah. Um, so you've mentioned locking nutrients in, and I guess one of the things that um, are elements that people don't often think of as a nutrient is actually carbon. And I've seen the stats thrown around of how much carbon bogs can store compared to a forest. And according to one of the UN environment reports that bogs can store up to twice as much carbon as a forest. So I find that kind of thing quite fascinating. Are, are, do bogs have other ecological functions when when you sort of put them in their context of the wider landscape in in terms of well firstly in in terms of perhaps their importance when it comes to climate boreal peatlands uh, things like blanket bog and raised bog these peatlands that tend to have a hell of a lot of peat lots of deep peat um so yeah they they are incredibly important when it comes to climate uh, boreal peatlands contain more carbon than is contained in sort of all of our world's forests combined <laughs> so they're pretty darn important in in terms of their sort of importance when it comes to wildlife i mean yeah, they, they, they are super important when it comes to biodiversity just because they're home to so many species that generally are specialist and they're not found in any other kind of habitat, uh, which makes the loss of raised bog, especially in Britain, even more sad. We've lost over 99% uh, of our active raised bogs in Britain over the past century and a half. Oh, it's pretty alarming. But if we uh, go back to the carbon storage, why is that, I guess? Uh, my, my thinking is that there's a lot more organic matter in the substrate of a, a bog when compared with a forest. Yep. So if you go into your average woodland, there's only so much carbon that that area of woodland is able to soak up. Uh, trees are great. But what happens to a tree when it dies? Well, that wood decomposes it. I mean, most woodlands anyway. Um, all, all that wood, um, it'll be broken down and all of that trapped carbon, or certainly a huge proportion of it, will go back into the atmosphere again. That doesn't really happen on, on healthy, happy uh, raised bogs because all of that dead sphagnum and that dead vegetation it's in an environment that effectively discourages um, bacteria and fungi coming in to break break it all down and so all of that dead material on our on our raised bog will stick around and it'll just get buried and broken down a little bit until it becomes um becomes our, our dark peat which is uh, an incredibly carbon rich thing um so yeah woodlands and peatlands really really very different environments yeah i'm, I'm imagining or I'm, I'm sort of thinking to digging 
down like through the the substrate that you would find in a forest and it doesn't take too far down often before you start to hit like a very mineral based substrate where it's very sandy or, or clay based but i imagine you can dig a lot deeper in a raised bog before you hit like a, a more mineral based substrate it's mostly organic for quite a depth yep um so, so average on average peat formation on a healthy happy raised bog is about one millimeter a year and so some of some of our oldest bogs, you know, we're getting peat deposits that are sort of 10 meters or so deep. So they go down for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess then the other thought is that, yes, you can get trees that are much taller than that, but then there's empty, well, there's air in between the trees. So it's not like when you walk into a woods, it's not solid wood matter that you're walking into for that depth whereas in uh, a peat bog when you're looking at the peat that is a solid volume a lot of which is carbon i play a lot of minecraft i'm always reminded (laughs) that like when you when you chop down a tree in minecraft you only get a couple blocks to work with but if you dig a tunnel in minecraft you only have to go a tiny way before suddenly you're overwhelmed with the number of blocks Um, and i guess it's kind of you can get a similar idea of what's happening with the carbon when you compare these two habitats by by making that comparison that's Um, it yeah so i mean you've mentioned uh several times that all of this good stuff happens in in a healthy bog in a healthy blanket bog or raised bog and you've mentioned some of the things that happened to the bogs in sort of the manchester area you managed drainage um could you talk a bit about some of the threats that these habitats face nowadays yeah 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 so um when it comes to the Manchester, Greater Manchester raised bogs, which I adore, uh, and all of our other <laughs> degraded raised bogs across the country, um, when you drain a healthy raised bog, you put drains in it to make it less wet, um, changes start, you, you, you instigate changes in the habitat. And at first, you'll lose the species that like it to be really, really wet. Things like great sundew and white beak sedge, these plants you'll find in bog pools. And then you'll begin to lose species like your sphagnum mosses. Eventually, when when you begin to drain these really beautiful habitats, you're ultimately left with very, very few species. And not only do you lose an incredible number of species, but because you've made, you've dried out the peat mass, um, you've effectively got a bog that isn't taking in carbon from the atmosphere anymore, but you've dried the peat out. And so bacteria and fungi can get in there now and begin to break down the peat. And so you've actually got a habitat that emits carbon into the atmosphere. And one real priority for the Lancashire Wildlife Trust, as an example, and lots of other conservation charities across um, sort of North and Western Britain, is to restore some of these heavily degraded raised bog sites by making them wet again, um, as well as reintroducing species, including sphagnum mosses. To yeah, restore restore sort of ecosystem functionality again. 
So what what are the reasons why uh, you might drain a bog or why were these bogs drained? Is it is it primarily for agricultural land? Yes. So that was the main that's that's been the main cause of decline in Britain. We've lost 40 odd percent of our raised bogs uh, because they've been converted to agricultural land. Uh, there's been another 30 percent that have been used for forestry. And I, I think it's Oh, I might be wrong, but I think it's about 20% as well that have been used in recent times as peat extraction sites. So we're taking away the peat to make compost um, mainly. So, yeah, they're the sort of main three reasons, agriculture, forestry and and peat extraction. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And peat, so um, people might be familiar with peat um, from from compost, and there's been lots of discussion about phasing out the use of peat in compost recently. Perhaps a little bit less well known reason for peat extraction is as as fuel, because it's it's mm-hmm. blocks of organic matter, so it it can be burned like a like a block of wood in some ways. When when you talk about rewetting a habitat, is it is it just a matter of taking away the drain and then just letting rainfall do the rest? Is it um, I'm imagining when you talk about rewetting, like someone standing there with a hose and like spraying water back <laughs> on it? Um, in in some cases, uh, it might be as easy as just blocking up drains, but on on super heavily degraded sites, which is all of the Greater Manchester mosses. Uh, the Great Manchester Bogs, we they they have to use uh, buns. So basically, you build up sort of an a peat embankment to stop water going off the off the area, um, as well as as well as ditch blocking. But it's not it's not just as simple as that, because when you lose key species of sphagnum moss, these fundamental organisms these botanical beavers that ultimately create and maintain these habitats um what happens when you lose those species is during really sort of droughted summer months um you've still got a site that dries out a hell of a lot when it shouldn't do so when it comes to sort of peatland restoration it's not just about making it wetter blocking up drains and making these embankments to stop water running off site but the reintroduction of key species especially certain sphagnum mosses um is is completely fundamental to to the restoration of these incredible spaces that's that's really amazing and fascinating so with so the sphagnum mosses are just better at keeping the water than than like the surrounding vegetation or the surrounding like soil and substrate. So in, in dry weather, they just dry out more slowly. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So so sphagnum moss sphagnum as a as a genus of mosses, they all have specialized cells. They're big old dead cells called hyaline cells. And they these hyaline cells are specifically adapted to soak up and retain water to keep the plant wet. And some sphagnum mosses are better at staying saturated than others. Um, so there's one species called Sphagnum papillosum, papillose bog moss, um, that is really, really good 
um, at retaining water. And actually, a lot of the peat, most of the peat in the past, in Greater Manchester anyway, is going to be made from that one species. Uh, it's just really, really good at staying wet in the, the droughted summer months um, and forming these lawns of sphagnum. It's, yeah, beautiful species. Wow. And so, and then over time, because it's good at holding water and it, you know, it'll grow and take over more space. And then I can now imagine like this expanding patch that just dries out much more slowly until you have this big blanket of it that can then grow up o over time. I, I guess we should um, describe sphagnum mosses a, a little bit more. So you've talked about these specialized um, cells, but because I think when most people imagine mosses, they'll imagine little green clumps that grow on walls and in like cracks. But sphagnum mosses are a bit more distinct than that. Oh yeah, they look like, I think the best way I could describe it as maybe as a miniature alien Christmas tree. Um, they look really groovy. Um, and a lot of them have sort of, they, they produce different pigments. So they'll, um, you'll get some that look like sort of rusty iron. You get some that are really sort of like a wine red, some that are green, some that are ochre and so on sort of really nice, diverse, healthy peatlands. You've got, especially in winter, this tapestry of colour. It's just really, really beautiful. But the moss itself, yeah, they kind of they kind of look like spongy alien Christmas trees. Um, yeah. Is that how I'd describe it anyway? Yeah. And if you were to, I guess, gently like pull one out, it'll it'll have the as you describe it, like weird alien Christmas tree puffy top where it would be exposed to the to light and air. But then below that, you've got kind of like like a long strand that kind of just goes down. And I guess that's where it used to be the top before, but, you know, it's just now it's stuck down below. So there's just not as much bushiness left to it. That's it, yeah. Yeah, so if you were to pull up one moss, one clump of sphagnum you would get like a puffy top and then these long strands that go down that give you a sense of just how deep um, the, the habitat can go so one of the challenges that some habitats face is like e ecotourism for instance is a often seen as like okay a way in which we can increase support for these kinds of habitats we want people to come and like see these habitats but also they they spend money in the local economy and that can really help things out but one of the challenge that that more people can bring is also increased footfall is that a challenge that these habitats face it's a massive challenge um especially to some of the larger um sort of nature reserves we have across britain maybe not so much uh, the greater manchester bogs that i've sort of spoken about um but near me I am very lucky because I don't just have bogs. I have the single most extensive sand dune system in Britain on the Sefton coast. And huge proportions of the Sefton coast have a massive issue with footfall, um, but also a uh, dog doo-doo, uh, <laughs> which you might not think is that big a problem, but actually... Um, when you get a hell of a lot of people who own dogs who don't clean up their dog poo, um, it adds nutrients 
uh, and enriches these otherwise nutrient-poor habitats. Um, and it begins to increase, sort of decrease the conservation value of these habitats. Species um, that, are, that like sort of nutrient-poor soils begin to disappear and species that you find everywhere, things like nettles and ryegrass come in and they begin to sort of increase in abundance. So on the Sefton coast, it's a big issue. It's not just people and footfall and disturbance, but also uh, nutrient enrichment, mainly from dog doo-doo. I can imagine someone being out in what they perceive as a wild space. Their dog goes to the loo and them just thinking, oh, no, that's fine. It'll just, you know, it'll rot. It's natural stuff. It'll go back into the environment. I don't need to worry about picking it up. But actually, you're saying that that can have quite a significant impact over time. And when you think about the number of people and their dogs that are that are leaving things behind, that's it. Really interesting. I never thought of that before. Yeah, actually, a, a huge number of, of sort of nature reserves suffer from it really badly. It's called sort of eutrophication, where habitats are enriched with nutrients. And and the problem, the problem with that, when you add nutrients onto any kind of habitat, is you know those nutrients that they're, they're not really going anywhere. They're being recycled. They're being cycled into the soils. And so, actually, that when, when you when you enrich soils, it can have a serious long term impact upon the sort of integrity of the habitat and quality of it. And I I know loads and loads of sites, um, a lot on the Sefton coast, um, that are that are slowly just deteriorating um, because of excessive. Um, used by people and, and dogs so, mm. yeah yeah that's it's really it's interesting if we um go back to the bog context you think of one of their climate uh benefits is kind of i guess the fact that they're nutrient poor and can support only a limited um range of really specialized um plants in, including the sphagnum mosses and mm. adding nutrients into that breaks down what makes that kind of ecological system valuable for for carbon sequestration or or yeah what makes it uh such a good carbon sink is partly the lack of nutrients meaning that limited plants can grow including the sphagnum and then that creates the self-perpetuating carbon storage system mm. and just by throwing in a bit of poo <laughs> it, that can change the balance of things over time yeah really interesting yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing stuff. Uh, so I guess last thing we should do, we, we've talked a bit about some of the challenges that these habitats face and, and that these amazing plants face. Are, are there some things that uh, people can do to, to help out? Lots. Yeah. I suppose one thing people could do at home, um, which I've actually done, I've, I've moved into a new house year before last in late 2021 uh one thing i did straight away was i looked at my lawn and there weren't very many species in there so one thing i did was i went around um a few development sites that buy my house and stole lots of wildflower seeds uh things like red clover things like meadow vetchling and bird's foot trefoil um, and all of these incredible wild plants that 
have, you know, sort of like hundreds of insects that are associated with them. And I introduced them into my garden. So I, I think one thing that lots of people can perhaps do at home is, is grow native wildflowers, which can benefit a, a huge raft of, of species that might come and, come and visit your garden. Another thing people could do is um, vote with their wallets and um, give money to the likes of the Wildlife Trust and the RSPB uh, and these organisations that are doing incredible amounts for, for biodiversity recovery in, in Britain. There's a couple of things. And I guess on the voting with your wallets thing, as, as we're, we've been talking bogs and, and peat, is just not buying compost which contain peat, which is an ever-decreasing range now. But, I mean, we can help that along um, by going for, for peat-free alternatives. Definitely. Absolutely encourage people not to buy compost with peat in it. One thing we've done in this country is absolutely obliterate our bogs. Um, we've lost over over 99% of our raised bogs, uh, which is the main habitat that we've targeted for peat extraction. Um, and now that we've done that, um, peat extraction companies have moved over to Europe. So now we're destroying European peat bogs some internationally important sites it's it's devastating um so yeah absolutely one thing people could do is is definitely not buy anything repeated it yeah <laughs> yeah and i guess talk to your local uh nurseries and garden centers about where they source things because that's the mm. the hidden peat that's in those plants i guess is in the um growing of plants that you find in your local nurseries because even if you buy peat-free compost, if the the plants that you might get at these nurseries might still come in peat-containing compost, and that will be a bigger, probably a bigger demand on peat than than domestic um, yeah. compost use is, is commercial compost use. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There, there are some really good suppliers out there that that grow all of their plants in in peat-free compost. I think being Q. Being used one of them, and I'm sure there are others as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, and I guess that's another thing is is talking to to these companies about if they don't have a policy of buying from peat free suppliers, um, getting that getting that in. I I always like to encourage people to be the what is it the squeaky wheel kind of thing. You know, it's talking and sending emails and sending written letters to your local political representatives, to companies, especially their sustainability officers, can have an impact when they understand that there is public demand for these changes in policy out there. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've covered everything, unless there's any other... uh, Last things that you wanted to mention about uh, the amazingness of bogs <laughs> and mosses? <laughs> um, I can't think of anything, to be honest. Yeah. Thank you very much, Josh, for, for being on the show. It's been really absolutely fascinating to, to talk to you about these amazing habitats and these amazing plants. Oh, thanks for, ha- thanks for having me, Victor. It's, it's been great. <laughs>
So that was my conversation with Joshua Stiles from British Botany and the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative. For more information about Josh and his many projects, check out the full show notes. They're linked in the description of this episode, or you can go to the new website at knowingnature.cc. If you have comments, questions, or a topic that you'd like explored on the show, send me an email at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at kn underscore podcast. Thanks very much for listening. 